This podcast is brought to you by Provar. Provar is the leading expert in accelerating innovation within the Salesforce ecosystem. Founded by experts in the Salesforce community, Provar provides a robust test automation solution to help you deliver scalable and repeatable tests. Automated and polymorphic testing is the key to maximizing your Salesforce investment. To learn more, visit provartesting.com. Welcome to TestSphere Roulette, the podcast where my panel guests could be asked to discuss any testing topic decided by randomly selected TestSphere cards. I'm your host, Simon Pryor. Let's talk testing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the TestSphere Roulette podcast, the podcast where we will talk about random test topics generated by whichever TestSphere cards get selected. I'm having a bit of a fanboy moment today. I've got two of the two testing superstars with me. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves, but we've got podcast supremos, international conference speakers, mentors, and all-round good testing guys. So I'll let, let them introduce themselves. Neil, do you want to go first? Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Neil Studd. Uh, I'm a senior software development engineer in test for Postman. Uh, you may also know me as a podcast host. Among the podcasts I do on this very channel, I host the Testers Island Discs podcast, where I interview a different tester each month about their careers and music that they enjoy. Uh, I've recently launched a new podcast with Gwen Diagram and Sanjay Paswani called Tech Team Weekly, which is on YouTube, uh, where we chat about technology uh, and uh, stories that interest us. And I also host a podcast called Screen Testing with another tester whose name is Dan Billing. Um, it'd be nice to talk to Dan sometime, wouldn't it? Uh, hello, gentlemen. <laughs> yes, for for it is he. Uh, I am Dan Billing, um, which was my nickname at uh, a office I used to work at called uh, Bright Pearl in Bristol. IMDb. I am Dan Billing. So, because <laughs> my good. extensive knowledge of movies and television, um, I'm a senior software engineer at Microsoft at our new. Azure for Operators Division. So we're working on building private mobile networks using 5G, which is extremely complex and a lot of learning to do. I'm mostly responsible for supporting, developing the testing strategy, delivering that testing strategy. And um, uh, also I do a lot of like training and mentorship within the testing community at Microsoft as well. So it, it, it's a, a difficult time at the moment, but also a lot of learning to do. And that makes it very exciting and interesting. Let's get going. Thank you for both joining. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I will spin the wheel um, and we'll talk about the card for about eight to 10 minutes um, and then move on to the next one. So I'm going to spin the wheel for the first time. Are you both ready? Shoot. Right. I'm spinning. Spin And it's landed on excited feelings, positive feeling. Changing processes and technologies bring a team a whole lot of options and different possible strategies. Your team can't wait to try out new things. Where should we start? I think it's an interesting one in that a lot of the feelings associated with testing normally tend to be seen as quite negative ones. We have... Uh, uh, historically been seen as people who are quite critical because we have to try and effectively find problems or break things as they say even though you know they're already breakable it's not us who are the ones that break them but excitement is an interesting one because it, it, yeah we all do this because we have a passion for what we do 
Uh, and it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that. I think excitement is the thing that makes us get out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that makes us seek a new role if our previous one wasn't particularly of, of excitement to us. It's what led me, for example, to my current role at Postman was when it became time for me to move on from my old role uh, because it was no longer going to be fully remote and I wanted to keep being fully remote. Uh, I was like, well, who, who do I want to work for? Who do I already have a passion for? Whose products do I know? Um, whose the tools make my life easier? And so Postman for me was a natural match. It was like, you know, I, <laughs> I get paid to do the things that I, that I love doing and, and I get to use um, a tool that I love to do it. Um, Postman, without turning this into an advert for the tool, um, it's a tool that makes our day-to-day jobs as testers easier. We test Postman using Postman because you can write tests in the, t- the Postman GUI. Uh, so we, you know, it's I use it every day, uh, and I could not be happier with it. And that's you know part of the the buzz I get out of being a tester. So I'd like to take that um, when we talk about excitement, we're talking about like okay, positive thinking, well-being, teamwork, and that has been something that has been at least for me, um, uh, for a while has been in short supply in terms of my career and my thinking about work and how I approach testing a product. Um, Because uh, before COVID, I was not working for a while because I was caring for my dad. So getting excited about uh, a product and a project or a um, an issue or a bug or a problem that I found, they were just secondary thinking. They were secondary issues to me at that time. However, coming into um, Microsoft and learning about the complexities of 5G networking, it doesn't strike everyone as being the most exciting things to test. There's no real GUIs to look at. We're understanding functions of how data is sent and received. The most exciting thing is exploring that and understanding that with my colleagues and being able to draw out thinking from other people, people who are experienced in um, 5G comms and networking. Um, they tend to have a quite a sort of a narrow view of testing and what it can achieve. So introducing uh, a wider world of understanding that testing and how we can use heuristics and oracles and exploratory skills to help us find problems rather than just having heaps of checklists and specs to pour over. Uh, that Use those as oracles. That's great. That's fantastic. But for me, it's the learning about new things and incorporating that um, into my thinking and also working with an excellent team. Uh, and that actually, you know creates new opportunities for excitement in itself because once you get um established in there then you have almost infinite opportunities for growth and that's the one of the things that we look for is that growth mindset about you know how we solve problems yeah i think you're right and i think um something that i've certainly experienced with excitement is you know starting a new role as i did nearly two years ago now and moving somewhere going somewhere where there wasn't a lot of excitement around testing and trying to help build that excitement within the team again, you know, get them engaged, get people such as yourself, Dan, come and talk to them and, and getting people excited about, you know, what testing can be. It's not just about manually writing thousands of test scripts and doing it at the end of a cycle. It is There is all these other options of trying to do stuff and, and seeing people, seeing that light switch go and starting to get them 
excited again. For me, that's that's almost as exciting as raising the bugs and finding them myself. Is is actually getting the team excited again and and yeah and testing in new ways and and learning exploratory testing across the team and and doing it with them so not just telling them to go and do something but doing it with them agreed Uh, finding a bug and maybe even fixing it is quite an ephemeral short-term sort of hit that you get Mm, it it can be addictive but it it doesn't last long so trying to sustain that is an important thing Neil you wanted to say something yeah, I was going to say, I think when you think about feelings, a lot of the negative feelings, uh, it, they are, they can be relatively easy to either banish or to create the conditions to banish them, whether excitement is a difficult one to to generate on the fly. Like you say, Dan, sometimes you can get that short-term high of, I'm going to go and try and, you know, I'm going to absolutely destroy this thing now. I'm going to, you know, throw all my biggest weapons at this, uh, you know, I'm going to try and do a performance test with you know, a thousand simultaneous users and see how badly wrong it goes and when and, and what falls over the worst. Uh, but conditions for excitement to be prolonged uh, comes back to what Simon says, I think. you need That needs to be driven out through the team. It's done through having happy and healthy retrospectives where you understand how people like to work and the conditions mm. to create that excitement. Um, let me just... Uh, to- read what some of the options on the cards were um so you the team decided to try recovering from a self-engineered crash in production after a difficult and stressful time they solved it to, solved it together um we're going to tr- we're going agile or devops is a new trend uh, you're not exactly sure what management means by it but you see it as an opportunity i think that last one um particularly the the we're going to go agile or we're going to go devops i think that can cause a mix of excitement and um can certainly unnerve teams especially when they're you know, maybe you've got people on the team that know Agile, know DevOps, but when the when the organization sometimes comes to you and go, we're going to go DevOps, there's always that cynic in me that goes, are you sure it's DevOps? Are you sure you're not just renaming teams and changing job titles and all that kind of stuff? But yeah, what are your thoughts? So I've been in that situation um, when we were at New Voice Media and there were a lot of people excited about it, but there's a lot of people that were very skeptical about those things. So generating a mentality around teamwork and was more important than the words about what kind of team we will build, you know, what the type of processes we were using. That was more ex- important than, and more exciting than whether we were doing DevOps or whether we were being agile. It was knowing that you had a team that you could rely on that you could that you were supported uh, both up and down and horizontally within the business hierarchy. And there was a hierarchy, even though it was quite flat structure. Um, and that those ideas and the ways of working were allowed to nurture within the team. And that was probably my my best experience of that. And whenever I talk about it, if I'm ever interviewed or if I go to interviews um, or if I'm asked about a good example of where a team worked well, uh, that's always my first go-to because it still sits vividly in my mind about how great a team we built around a few simple ideas and a few, you know, the, the you know, making performance better, making usability better, making uh user experience and security better having just a few key principles uh and how the team could fit around that and work with it and develop within that and that was exciting 
I've been around long enough now to know that change is always going to happen. There are always going to be, particularly above you, there are going to be leaders who want to make a name for themselves by implementing change. Um, and as you said, Dan, you know that change can be received well or it can be received with cynicism. Mm. Um, the ones who are receiving it with cynicism have probably been there, done that, seen it not work. I'm always willing to give change a go as long as the person driving that change is willing to listen as to whether their changes are working or not and you know potentially roll back those changes or adapt them um so i, I go into it with an open mind uh, i i um i know it's always going to be there and, and so i always try to give it all my enthusiasm uh, until it doesn't work <laughs> i think what's really exciting about this and the develop and the way we we we're shifting things forward or or even left or or where how we're how we're changing tech culture um is that the folks that are now old hands are folks that started in the late 90s or early 2000s who are the ones who have now seen it all. But there are still folks who started their tech careers in the 70s and 80s who are still working now. And that's great as well because we can draw on their deep, deep experience. And those folks are probably coming towards the end of their careers or maybe thinking about retirement, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that their opinions and their viewpoint and their experience is any less valid. And it doesn't mean that the the, uh, the young people that are now coming into graduate and internship roles uh, now, today, um, also don't have exciting opportunities and learning and knowledge to offer and share because they've just come through an educational experience, which, you know, we haven't had. And uh, they're now bringing that into the workplace and infusing it with their enthusiasm, their 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 excitement their skill and their talent and all of those different layers of experience and layers of skill can work to make a, a very exciting dynamic environment i hope yeah definitely echo that i think as someone who is approaching veteran status now like it or not <laughs> uh, i i now i find myself learning more from people who are younger and newer than me uh, than those who are more senior uh, partly that's because the numbers are shifting there are more people coming into the industry than those of us who have been in it for nine or 20 years now but uh, yeah i i think the, i get excitement from others and that excitement is, is fed by uh, the youth and the, and the and the new starters i totally agree with that i think yeah you're trying to get new blood into the industry to try and bring new ideas and learn that and then learn the methods that they're, you know, the way they're being taught with things and the new technologies. Um, any opportunity to try and learn something new from from somebody else is a, is a, an opportunity well taken. So, I absolutely agree with all of that. Yeah, brilliant stuff. All right, should we move on to the next one? Let's do it. Okay, I'm going to spin the wheel again. And it stopped on social engineering oh. techniques. It's almost as if we know that Dan's in the building. Um, <laughs> I, it's completely random, I promise. Um, no, so, a type I of conf confidence trick for a purpose of information gathering, fraud, or accessing systems. How much personal information do people need to pose as legit users to your system? How hard is it to obtain this information? Mr. Billing, let's I go love with you. Uh, okay, I love this topic. I um, I'm not a social engineer, in that I don't try and break into banks and build buildings and businesses and try and you know prove that 
you know, their systems are vulnerable. But I love the theory and the stories behind it and the the thinking that goes into planning a uh, an attack or a test of this nature. Some of the, the wonderful experience and learning that I've picked up through the, you know, best part of a decade I've been learning about security testing, and it is a form of security testing, um, has been, you know, extremely informative and wonderful to enrich my my security or my general tech learning with 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 this information so you know the likes of dr jessica barker or um uh freaky clown um and uh stories i've heard from folks like jay harris for example uh and uh, reading books by kevin mitnick or christopher hagnaggy or listening to the 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 stories that are on darknet diaries podcast some of these things are just fantastical. When they, they talk about how folks have been employed to um, or contracted to break into a, a bank or some other establishment, and they have to arrange themselves, get out of jail free cards if they get caught by security guards or the police, um, all the tools that they bring along with them, whether it's a shim or whether it's uh, a car cloner to clone access cards or whether they're uh, getting uniforms to get into buildings or anything like that. It's like watching a, an episode of the A-Team where they like pretend to be whatever to get into a building. Um, uh, it's also quite, you know, why I enjoy uh, spy films and uh, con artist films. Like, you know, your, your Mission Impossible films are pretty good examples of social engineering happening where you where, where you're breaking into buildings to and pretending to be someone you're not like a, a Russian KGB general or something like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great learning out there about social engineering and it's a minefield because it's not something you get into lightly. Um, I've run workshops on it, like how we discover information about each other using the web, for example, um, questioning techniques, interview techniques, inter you know, if you want to take it to extremes, interrogation techniques as well, you know, it's all social engineering. Being a detective of any kind, whether it's in code or whether it's for crime, that's a form of social engineering because you have to um, use those skills to elicit information from the people you work with. So there's social engineering ev everywhere with your um, navigating um uh, life every single day or whether you're doing something uh, to protect individuals or businesses i will speak up as the voice of the lay person who doesn't have <laughs> dan's years and years of experience of working on exactly this thing <laughs> kind of blindsided with this card but i think when you think of social engineering uh, attacks that the the number one most common that people think of is like typical phishing style attacks where, you know, the big one doing the rounds at the moment is text messages from the Royal Mail pretending that you've got a parcel you need to pay for, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, very, very, very broad. They don't care who they target. They're just, you know, if I, if we can catch one out of 100,000 people and bleed their account dry, then great. Um, so that that's your very broad stroke attack. The ones that scare me much more are the very, very targeted personalized attacks that are done by uh, the types of organizations uh, that, that Dan is referring to. You know, someone who wants to to gain access to one particular company systems or one particular person's accounts. And that person um, 
can be exploited in, in various ways. Uh, my experience, to quote the media from that, is is the TV series Mr. Robot, which yeah. is absolutely well, 100% spot on, whereas a lot of the films that Dan name-checked, you know, they, 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 they invest in <laughs> hyperbole and explosions. Mr. Robot is very, very much yes. grounded in reality in terms of, um, yeah. There's elements of science fiction in a lot of, you know, you know, like Mission Impossible, for example, uh, masks that can be digitally created, for example. But yes, you're quite right. Mr. Robot is spot on. But this this is why we go down social engineering, because humans tend to be the weakest part in any yes, system. Absolutely. We can build, particularly yeah. these days, it's so easy to encrypt passwords and stuff. But if someone tells you what their password is, no <laughs> amount of encryption is going to protect you from that. So or if you can guess a password as well. Well, yeah, and that's where, you know... You know I was going to come back and ask you about how we incorporate into our testing around this at some point. But when you go into things like just social media posts, I saw one yesterday where um, someone put a post up saying there was 800 seats in heaven and your last three phone digits of your phone number will tell you your seat number. And people were putting it in the, in the comments and I'm thinking, oh my God. do you realize what you're doing? Um, yeah. And it's just, yeah, yeah, it's an education piece. I used to do internet. I so- see that when, yeah, there, there's somewhere, it's, it's a site that does like, who was born on the same day as you type thing, yeah. like day, month, year, where like yeah. people share that and like, oh, on the same day that I was born, so was so-and-so. Well, you wouldn't post your date, month, year of birth online necessarily, no. but you would share this information, which can then very easily be flipped back yeah, to find exactly. what your date of birth yeah. was. There's one that's well known. It's what's your Star Wars name, which is uh, like your mother's maiden name plus yeah. uh, your cat's name. T- plus, plus the last thing you ate or something like that. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, uh, those of us that have fandom, fandoms uh, are often, you know, you'll think that your passwords are related to your fandoms, mm. um, which is uh, a, another one you can use for social engineering. So spotting patterns in people's behaviors and, and what they post and talk about yeah. can be a useful way of getting information. Um, also, when, when it comes to testing, itself because we are referring specifically to tests here mm-hmm. or, or how we test and how we think about testing and quality is um what do um ha- how do we as testers incorporate these kinds of skills into our day-to-day work and it could be as simple as making a cup of tea for a colleague which is a form of social engineering itself. You're creating a social in space. You're, yes, you're being kind to an individual or you're bringing in cakes for the team. So you're creating an environment in which uh, you're social engineering the group essentially by you know creating an environment where everything feels happy and confident in each other, that everybody's seen as friendly with each other. And so that creates a collegiate environment. It's not just about teamwork. It is in itself a form of social engineering. So it's creating that that, that environment where, where everybody feels happy and working with each other and wants to share with each other. And then we do end up talking about what our, our loves and likes and interests are and how they impact our day-to-day work and how they, you know, we get excited about things, bringing it back to excitement because – um what we love and loathe uh, ultimately informs how we think about the world um and that is part of how we interact with with you know socially as well so you know it's it's not just people trying to break into banks or steal data uh, there's a lot of ways you can use social social engineering just in day-to-day work or day-to-day life so, so one example i have of um you know 
that, that I, I've experienced in the past where I, I found some issues through some kind of social engineering was just roles access, trying to change the, the access that I'm going in as or giving myself admin privileges. And at the time, the the, um, the syntax used for an admin account was just a dash A at the end of your username. And it didn't matter whether you actually officially had an admin account or not. If you put dash A at the end of your login, you got admin rights and you could do a lot more you know, stuff with the system. So that was that, that was bug that I, I found once once that I was I was quite sort of proud and quite keen to, to make sure we got it fixed. Um yeah. but just just trying different things, you know, if you know someone's got an elevated privilege then then trying to find a way to get that access and see if what, what you yeah, that kind of thing. Um that's the real example I've got of a social engineering as part of my test test plan is, is trying to do the roles role stuff roles and personas yeah. are a great way of getting into the headspace of your users yeah absolutely. um uh, and it's vital um similarly if we're talking about um security testing in specifically then you could uh, equally flip that yes a positive use case would be the types of users who you expect to use the application or the product but also creating roles and personas of the kinds of people that you either don't expect to use the product or you don't want to be using the product. Um, I've done a little bit of uh, work, or at least a um, a workshop with uh, Josh Gibbs, who's an American uh, software engineer. Um, this was at, I believe, CAST in Nashville a few years ago. He, he's a lovely guy, and he did a social engineering um, workshop as one of, his, one of the workshops at that CAST. Um, and I can recommend that workshop if anyone gets to do that again in person. I will throw in one final thing before we move on, uh, which is um, both as a, as a user and a tester of a system, uh, I think you need to make it as easy as possible for people to use password managers. Mm. Um, so that is don't have arbitrary maximum lengths on your password fields because you think no one's going to want a password longer than that. Um, you have no idea how many degrees of, you know, as compute power increases, passwords that aren't very easily hackable today may become more easily hackable. Um, you've got uh, Moore's laws that says, you know, it's there going to get easier to break. Um, also, making sure that your password reset flows for when something goes wrong. Make sure that that includes some form of two factor. So make sure that if someone requests a password reset, it goes to the email on the account and not just it doesn't just let you reset it without checking first whether the person who owns that account is is OK with that. Okay, are we ready for spin for the final time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Spinning the wheel. And it's stopping on observability. <laughs> oh, that's good. Quality Neil, aspect. Go first. Controllability yeah. aspect. How well can you see what's actually going on within the product? Can you answer new questions without deploying code? Yeah, that's absolutely something that, that I'm into. As, as much as there are lots of, of keywords around shifting left and shifting right, I think being able to see what's going on uh, within your system is, is a, a massive, massive benefit. One of the favorite exercises that I ever did on a, a, a huge migration project where we were, we were swapping out an entire backend system for a new one, I'd be wanting the functionality to remain exactly the same. What I did was I spent literally days and days just watching what was happening in the logs while we were going through internal user testing because people were on the surface seeing you know, the, the very obvious things that people were spotting. But you know, occasionally there would be 
a random exception kicked out where something was being mapped as a string that used to be an integer or vice versa. And yeah, the, the, the most scary errors are the ones that you can't see because they're just happening under the hood. They could be happening hundreds or thousands of times a second. They could be causing problems that you don't know about until they're too late, uh, particularly if it's, you know, imagine if your system's silently kicking out an error saying the backups aren't working. Well, you won't find that out until you try and get the backup. Um, so there is there is real value in understanding what your application is is logging out. Um, again, one of the things that I, projects I was involved in in Money Supermarket was we had like a... The application that I worked on, we had a a weekly count of how many errors were coming out of the system. And my goal was to um, basically, you know, find the low hanging fruit first. You know, if, if we're having a million errors a week, but 300,000 of those are all the same error message that can be very easily um, solved. Um, let's tackle those first and then gradually bring that number down. Um, and we reduced it by, I think, about 90 percent during my time there, uh, because as you take away the noise, you're left with the new things and the new things are the ones that should scare you most because they've just broken, you know, they are technically their regressions, um, getting everything else out of the way so that you can see the things that matter um, by observing the system is really useful. So uh, to echo what Neil said, observability is a massive thing on the project I'm currently working on. So we have a, a stack that's quite complex uh, we have uh, 5G components that need to talk to each other. Uh, so there's not only the monitoring of the, um, the HTTP requests that happen with there, there's also the monitoring of uh, 5G comms that needs to happen. Plus there's observability that needs to happen within the stack itself. So there's a lot of layers to this, and it's probably the most complex um, stack I've worked in to date. And I'm learning a lot about observability as we go along. Uh, obviously, you know, without going into specifics, there's tooling that we have to support the observability of the product. Um, and, you know, some common well-known tooling that, would, you know, would be um, people would know about, uh, things like Prometheus and Grafana, all very useful tools. Um, and, and like yourself, Neil, observing traffic, looking at logs, um, making uh, not just uh, asking questions of the product, but making judgments around what's happening. Um, is it performant? Is it stable? Stability is one of the big you know, questions for us at the moment, as is performance. Um, so uh, observability and the approach to how we do that is one of the key quality aspects. Um, every cycle um, at work, I'm involved in generating quality insight stats for the business. And um, one of the key things that I look for is what observability work that the teams have been doing uh, as part of delivering for the whole project. And we give a RAG status on each of the aspects of quality that we're looking for. And observability is an area where there's a lot, been a lot of great improvement and enhancements that have been made because it's a multi-level, multi-layered multi project with lots of different teams doing different things and components that come together. So we have to have a coherent um, approach to how we observe the product when it's being used at a number of different levels so whether it's you know a single use case or multiple users all at once um in production and in test so it's 
you know, it's a big challenge. Uh, I remember the first time, though, that I really got involved in those this kind of work. And uh, I'm bringing it back to New Voice Media again, because that's when I first started hearing, hearing about things like um, observability and testability and things like that. And... Uh, you know, introducing new tools to my my experience, things like New Relic, which are super helpful. But it's a task in itself to be able to incorporate the tooling into your testing sphere um, and how we incorporate that tooling and the balance between uh, how efficient your observability is versus the information you get but also the impacts that tooling can have on the performance of the product so it's important to balance all those things out so that your tooling doesn't impact negatively on the performance of the product so uh you know i've i've seen that as being a problem as well yeah as testers we're in the information gathering business and the more different types of information that we can gather through observability the more information we can offer um mm. i could think of, of two two very funny stories about um when this is observability has um been useful um one of the things at money supermarket was we have you know a, a system activity uh, monitor effectively you know how many people are on the site at any one time Using that, you know, you can spot spikes. You know, there, there are spikes in people trying to get insurance at lunch times when they're on their lunch breaks, for example. But I got it fine-tuned. I could read the dashboards well enough. It was like like when you're in the Matrix, like when they're staring at the black and green spots <laughs> and you're saying, you know, I, all I see is, you know, the woman in the red dress now. But <laughs> I could tell when uh, our CEO, Martin Lewis, uh, famous um, consumer rights champion, was on TV because he would be talking about the site or, you know, the site's address would be on the screen for, you know, on BBC Breakfast or whatever. They, I could say, like, something weird's going on here. Has Martin just gone on TV somewhere? And frequently the answer was, yes, he's just on some breakfast TV program. So I could spot through monitoring, you know, when someone was physically doing something in the world because it was impacting on our systems. Uh, and similarly, uh, when I was at Compare the Market, we had a very similar graph that showed system activity. And this would have been, I think it must have been Euro 2016 because that matches up with when I was there. Uh, and there was, I think it was England v Wales was like a daytime kickoff, like a 2 p.m. kickoff in the day. And we had a load of monitoring set up to tell us if anything was going wrong on the site, like, you know, effectively the site seemed to be down. And loads of bits of our system started firing off uh, alerts saying it looks like something's gone wrong because there's no traffic. And the answer was everyone was watching the football. Like usual Tuesday afternoon traffic was not being seen because everyone was put their computers down to go watch the football during the middle of the day. It was a really good way of seeing which teams, uh, you know, a disaster recovery was going to work based on uh, people <laughs> not being there. So I guess, I guess one question I have for you both, and, and it's come from a place where there's a lot of companies out there that are nervous about looking at things like observability. They might do their own synthetic monitoring. They might do some level of monitoring, but the word observability and the, the, the thing of putting tooling into production to watch what our users are doing rather than doing all the testing up front scares them what would you suggest are the steps to to try and help people move towards a more observable model uh, neil i think you're best place to answer this question yeah i've, I've used a, f a few of these tools the ones that, that can actually you know like capture and record user sessions and obviously on a under legal and gdpr perspective there's a few things to, to take care of there obviously uh, a lot of these tools allow you to mask um either sensitive fields or anything that would, that would give you particular information about a user so you know you could, for example, see the user is currently in the name field, but you, it wouldn't record the actual name that was being entered. So, you know, if you just want to see the users flow through the system, you can capture that and you capture a video of that without capturing the 
actual data within the fields from, from a GDPR point of view. Um, there is also then, yeah, the the uh, there's, there's how you communicate to, to the user that you're using that, would be it through, you know, your terms and conditions. Uh, frankly, the ones that people don't tend to, to read uh, are ones <laughs> that give me quite a lot of uh, pause for thought because sometimes I've been the person who has had to put new things in there saying, you know, we are using plugin X. It will record for 30 days um, history of, of this these particular actions. It won't capture your IP. It won't capture any information. Um, so tuning those um, tools to keep your company happy and to keep your users happy are obviously a, a really key part of it. Okay. Uh, I, I'd agree with Neil on all of that. There's got to be a balance between the, the capability of the team to observe the product uh, and its usage. Uh, and balance that versus the actual usage by the customer and any impacts that it might have upon them. Um, I, I guess it depends on the product and and who's using it. Um, you know, for example, like the, 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 the example you cited, Neil, is when when people want to be able to use a product. Uh, for example, let's say a shopping platform uh, like Amazon. Uh, it's going to be super busy leading up to Christmas, isn't it? Um, and uh, we need to know how it's going to perform in, you know, for example, on Black Friday or any other busy time of the year. Um, you know, at, you know, different times of the day around the world, people wake up at three o'clock in the morning and find that their systems aren't working. I remember there was an outage on Netflix on Christmas Eve. Um, I can't remember what year it was, probably about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe less. Uh, but it's not a day you really... W- don't want to have your systems to be made unavailable. Um, yeah, the, the the PlayStation Network has a habit of going down on Christmas Day, doesn't it? When everyone tries to activate <laughs> their new consoles and download in, all the updates. Indeed, yes. Uh, or there's a, a new game that's come out, say, you know, the latest Call of Duty, for example, um, and often patch servers and uh, game servers really slow down. I mean, I'm an avid gamer myself, so I understand that. Um, I still haven't got a PlayStation 5, though. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah. Things. An example that comes to mind that I've experienced before is like Ticketmaster site when Glastonbury tickets go on sale and it suddenly grinds yes. to a halt. Um, and yeah, you can imagine they must need to have some kind of observability and monitoring in place to to, to predict when that's going to happen and, and make sure their systems are in the right state for it. Or in my case, a couple of weeks ago when the Foo Fighters launched their tickets. For the <laughs> oh, you managed to get tickets, did you? <laughs> I didn't in the end, unfortunately. No. Yeah, I didn't get any either. Um, on that note, um, that's the end of the three cards uh, for today. I hope you found that enjoyable. Um, Are you talking to us or the audience? Because I loved it. You as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I loved it too. Neil, did you have anything you wanted to plug before we close? And how best for people to contact you? Um, I think I probably plugged up top of all the things that I'm doing, mostly all the podcasty things. I have a blog at neilstud.com where I'm writing about anything new that I might be doing. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at neilstud uh, and yeah that'll that'll do you i think cool and dan uh so folks can find me on twitter at the test doctor i'm not doing too much in the community at the moment but i've got a couple of conference events coming up i'm doing a recorded conference for a recorded uh conference talk for star west in october so i've got to record that next week and get it out to them and then i'm doing one also and a workshop for agile testing days in november um But uh, no major plans, but also I've got a blog at thetestdoctor.co.uk as well. Not very prolific at the moment, mostly because 
you know, I'm into a new role and it being very busy. So, uh, you know. I wish I had as much time to do your idea of not doing that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's only two things. And it, they're, they're talks I've done before. So, you know, it's not that big a stretch. Uh, you can reach both Neil and I on at Screen Testing on Twitter as well. And when we get a new episode out, we will tweet the heck out of it. Good. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. Um, if anyone listening wants to get in touch uh, with the podcast, it's at TestBeerPod on, on Twitter. Um, there is a, a link to a submission form if you wish to be a guest on a future episode as well, and that will be in the show notes. And, yeah, thank you again, guys, for joining. And uh, happy listening and speak okay. to you again soon. It's great to talk to you, Simon and Neil. Thank you. Thank you to the guests and thank you for listening. For more information on TestFear, check out riskstormingonline.com or buy the card decks from the Ministry of Testing store. Music courtesy of zapsplat.com. We'll see you for more roulette again soon.